Content warning. A large portion of this episode contains discussions of scenes involving loss of body autonomy, homophobia, non-consensual sexual acts, self-harm, and extreme violence and gore. If these topics are triggering to you, there are timestamps in the episode description for you to skip over those sections. Thank you and enjoy the show. makes their dreams come true, gives them what they want. Hour eight, he moves among them, experiencing their little pleasures, their minor joys. Hour nine, he makes them listen to his podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Recommended uh -huh. Reading with Jackson Heyman, everyone. Um, and a big extra special happy Halloween. Ooh. Yeah, that's right. It's scary season, and we are covering today... I personally think the scariest comic of all time. Um, we are covering one single issue of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. And I am joined by the biggest Sandman fan, Sand fan. I, I think I I think I know personally. Um, returning to the podcast, it's Cole Conrad. How are you doing, Cole? I'm good. I'm I'm very excited to be here for one of the most horrifying things I've ever read. It is, it's really scary. It's genuinely horrifying and we will get into it, but I want to talk a bit about your experience, like with the Sandman as a whole, as a, as an entity, because okay. um, you were the one who sort of like convinced me to get on this train. Cause I had never read it until very, I had, like, heard of it, and I was like, oh, this is something I should read, but then mm. didn't, and then we were talking about it, like, one of the first weeks we met, and then I was like, oh, I will go buy the first trade, and then I did not read it until about a month ago. Oh, really? But now I read it. Yeah, I I had not... It's, well, <laughs> funny, funny enough, it was not in my personal possession for about a, for about half a year <laughs> because a mutual friend of ours, who we will not name on the podcast, borrowed it and then moved when I also moved. So I did not, I did not get it back until I saw him in February. Mm. Um, you know who you are. <laughs> you know, what's really funny is, um, for prep for this episode, I um, had to listen to the Audible because my copy is out on loan right now, too. I So I almost tried to experience this issue in every form it's available mm. right now. I was going to be like, oh, I will read the comic. 
I will listen to the Audible episode and then I will watch the episode of the ne the Netflix series that this issue is adapted into. But then I didn't. <laughs> and I just read the comic mm. because life and busyness. But whatever. Um, yeah, your personal experience with the Sandman, Cole. Oh, well, um, I became a fan of Neil's in 2017 and then just kind of devoured everything he's ever written from that time on. Um, mm -hmm. I actually, it's very funny because I am just getting back from a vacation at Disney World and the first time that I read um, this comic was on the way down to the last time I was at going to Disney World in 2018. <laughs> so that's kind of weird. <clears throat> I thought... I thought you were going to be like, oh, yeah, I read this on a ride. <laughs> yeah, I read it on Dumbo. It's the only ride you could read it on. Oh, <laughs> uh, Dumbo. Oh, hey, I don't know if this is good for the flying elephant. <laughs> Just because I want Dumbo to fly me away from the horror that is the diner. I, there, okay, there's got to be, there is like a recreation of, of a 50, 50s diner. In Disney World, I think, right? Yeah, I think it's the Sci-Fi Diner in Hollywood Studios. Well, there's the Sci-Fi Diner, but there was also, like, the 50s Cafe or whatever it Maybe. is. Maybe. I've never been to it, if there is. I've never been to either. I know the Sci-Fi Dine-In Theater is the one where you sit in the car tables, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, holy shit, that's... I like that. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if a corpse wanted to walk oh. in... <laughs> to the sci-fi dining oh, theater. No. <laughs> Ruin everybody's Disney World experience. Hey. Honestly, the um, I've been I've been to Disney World multiple times and I just like I sometimes like to people watch mm. when I go when I go when I would go to Disney World and like the amount of like overly stressed couples that reminded me a lot of like the couple in this oh, issue. Oh yeah. I was yep. Oh, yeah, your marriage is so <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, okay, yeah, but let's let's just jump into it, yeah. shall we? I I have a bunch of history about the Sandman that I want to get into first, okay? Because um, Sandman's huge thing. This is the first time we're covering on the podcast, um. So it was originally published in, starting January 1989, um, originally under the DC Mature Readers imprint, and then it was moved to the Vertigo imprint. Now, Cola, how much of Vertigo, like, how much Vertigo stuff have you read besides Sam? Um, Nothing else. I have plans to read other things, but unfortunately, I mean, I know the titles. I know that, you know, Constantine yeah. and um, Swamp Thing were all under that, but... Not a whole lot else. Yeah, so like, because those, Hellblazer, Swamp Thing, Doom Patrol, Sandman, um, Animal Man, they were like the first pre-Vertigo titles, I believe. Like, they were all under this mature reader's imprint, and they were all edited by the same woman, the same editor, Karen Berger. And it was sort of like colloquially re referred to as the Burgerverse, mm. because... She was in charge of discovering these like new talents, like Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Neil Gaiman, and and these incredible artists that they were paired with, and 
really telling a lot of like darker like mature stories because yeah they were intended for mature readers and that's you get things like everything that goes on in sandman you get the sheer body horror insanity that is doom patrol which i love but it's crazy but then you get like my personal favorite of these of these mature titles is uh the animal man series because it's so existential and dark and there's the whole thing where animal man turns to the reader and is like i can see you and then has the final issue of morrison's run is buddy baker the character having a conversation with grant morrison the writer about how this is the last time i'm ever gonna write you someone new is gonna come in and change everything and then buddy baker's just like but i don't want it to change. <laughs> i have a family <laughs> i have all this stuff you can't get rid of that and it's it's dark and fucked up and i love it and animal man will get its day on this podcast one day i'm excited but yeah but then these ver- these mature readers titles sort of like evolved they like got more dark more experimental more mature and they joined a host of other titles under the vertigo imprint which was like dc's home for more experimental more mature stories and then that imprint gave us a huge host of talent which i will um i have a list of a a long list of people that either started or made their mark on comics with vertigo um we have neil gaiman grant morrison jamie delano warren ellis brian k vaughn Bill Willingham, Mark Buckingham, Lila Sturges, Rachel Pollock, Peter Milligan, Brian Azzarello, Pia Guerra, and a lot more. So many more. Um, Jeff Lemire, who did Sweet Tooth way near Vertigo's end. Um, and then plenty of others. And you got titles like... Um, La- Later Vertigo is really interesting because that's when none of it's connected to the main DC universe. Ooh. And you get things like why the last man, um, DMZ preacher, like the big, like comics that you think would be like indie titles, but they're under the DC label technically. Mm. And I, by no means am some sort of comic historian, but I know a lot of those names just because I pay attention to comics. So because, you, because you know, like, they are famous, and they got huge because of Vertigo. And, like, I... And it's it's really something when, like, you look at early Vertigo, especially, how it was mostly just, like, taking these lesser-known C-B-list DC characters and then giving them complete reinventions to the massive year-long epic stories that then that then later vertigo was all about and i think i believe you can thank sandman for that simply because of the impact that it left on comics as a whole in the 90s Mm. uh let's talk about neil for a second um if i say the the name neil gaiman there is something that pops into the head of each of the listeners 
Because I think... I think Neil has, like, a story for everyone, would you I say? I definitely agree with that. Like, I don't think anyone's first, like, Neil Gaiman work is in... It relatively, it's not the same as someone else's. Like, I know my first Neil Gaiman work was Coraline. Mm. Coraline was the first thing I read of Neil's, and then I know people started with like Good Omens or or Mirror Mask. I know that. I know that's that. That's something. It might um, even have like, been. Um, oh, what's that Miyazaki film? Um, what's it called? Wait. Neil Gaiman worked on a Miyazaki Yeah, show? he um, did the English translation of um, the what? What is her name? The Wolf Princess. Um, Princess yes, Mononoke. Princess Mononoke. Neil, and so many people Neil, don't know that. Hold on. Um, but it, it could have been that for some people. It could have been he writes children's books like Coraline, but he writes yeah he writes younger a- books than that. It could have been Choose First Day, which is about a panda that sneezes. <laughs> I. I remember, um, holy shit, he did write the English dub for, um, Princess Mononoke, um, but I remember I was in a high school speech tournament, and I saw someone perform his, uh, Fortunately the Milk short story, and I just, I was like, oh shit, this guy really, is Chameleon, like, a good like way to like describe how he writes i because i think in that he can do any genre but he's always still neil the thing that i love about his writing is that he has a certain i don't know neilness about him that just like he's got a he's got a very defined voice that can work in like any genre and it's it's kind of insane like the, the the scope of everything he does but in 1989, Neil Gaiman hadn't written any, like, fiction He I had at least one short story published, and I believe it was... Well, it doesn't matter, but, um... Uh, he, he had, like, one sh- short prose story, and then he was working as a journalist yeah. at the time, I think. I gotta know. <laughs> we can get I, them for you wholesale, uh, for, 1984. Okay. Um, for the listeners, Cole Cole has pulled out a giant collection of Neil Gaiman short stories. The Neil um, Gaiman Reader, which I'm very proud to have contributed to in a very small way because um, his publisher sent out um, surveys um, for fans and asked, like, what top three, like, short stories would you say are the best? Um, cause, and saying, like, we're going to include the ones that get the most votes in this in this volume. Um, and so I, I voted and I kind of helped, which is really cool. Hey, <laughs> hey you, you helped make that happen. Yeah. Oh, I also have a really uh, cool Neil story that I just remembered, but I can tell it later. Uh, okay. Say this, say this. We'll get back into his. Okay. So, um, I got married in June. Um, and at the end of May, we went to go and see Neil speak in Madison. Um, and, on the Neil uh, Facebook page, um, not the Facebook page, the Facebook fan group, which is the official Neil Gaiman fan group. Um, <laughs> and I'm a part of it. I feel very cool, even though that's a super nerdy and lame, insignificant thing to be proud of. <laughs> hey, hey, it works. It works. Um, and uh, I... So 
this book, the Neil Gaiman Reader, um, I ordered um, a bunch of them to give as um, groomsmen gifts to my to my groom squad. Um, and I posted right. about it. Um, I ordered them from Britain cause the British cool, the British covers a lot cooler. Um, and so I put a picture on, I was like, oh, they finally came. And I, I was like, hello, fellow Neil nerds. Um, I'm going to give these as, as gifts for my groom's squad. Um, and everyone was like, oh, that's really cool. And there was this one woman who commented on and was like, hey, I've got a really cool idea. Email me. And at first I was like, okay, are you just some rando? Because, like, there were other people who were commenting, like, oh, I'd love to come. And I was like, okay, random stranger on the internet, let's, because we're part of the Whoa. same Facebook group, doesn't mean you get to come to my wedding. Um, Whoa, and uh... so I was like, should I even, should I even email this person? And I was like, well, what the heck, why not? Maybe they've got a neat idea. Um, and I did, and it's, it was, her name is Kat Mihos and she's Neil's assistant. And okay. yeah. And I was like, Hey, what's your idea? And she's like, I'm Neil's assistant. And if you want, we could arrange a way to get some book plates signed and then you could, you could put it in the book and you could give it to your, your grooms people. And I was like, yes, thank you so much. That's no one of the kindest things. Way. Holy yeah. Shit. Um, and so that was when Neil was still in Australia during the pandemic. And that date that he was coming to Madison kept getting pushed back and pushed back. Um, right. And if there was some talk of like, well, maybe we could like I could mail them to him and then he could mail them back. Um, but eventually we were like, well, I'm going to the Madison thing anyway. Why don't we just meet up? I'll give, hand them off to you and you can hand them off to Neil and he can sign them. Um, and that's what we ended up doing. Um, and I, it was so cool. <laughs> that's, that's, holy shit, that's yeah. amazing. For a second, I thought the story was going to a point where, like, oh, yeah, you met Neil Gaiman in Madison. <sighs> wish. And you didn't tell him. <laughs> no, I... You're supposed to tell me those things. I wish. I really wish that I had. Here, I, um... And he signed extras, go, too. So I gave... For a wedding gift, I gave my wife, um, one of the original copies of Stardust... Um, Holy shit. and, um, where's the book plate? I don't know where she stuck it, but it's in here. But, well, yeah, you don't have to, I don't have to, sh oh, here it is. So we haven't figured out where to stick it yet, but here's his signature. Holy And she shit. took a picture of him signing them for me, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. <laughs> I, for a second, I thought this story was going where, like, you met Neil Gaiman in, like, the neat, the Ian's pizza on, <laughs> in Madison. And I got really excited, but this is just as good of a story. <laughs> afterwards. Um, so it was really cool because afterwards there was a blood moon, um, which oh, is like shit, just right. the most Neil thing ever. You get out with an evening with Neil Gaiman and there's a blood moon. So we parked on the top of the parking garage and we just kind of stayed in the car and we ate the rest of our picnic we brought and like watched the blood moon. And my mind was racing like, where can I go? Where can I go that Neil might go that I can meet him? <laughs> so I had similar fantasies. Where do you think he would go during a blood moon? That, mm. That's my I question. feel like he would know some real like small spot, like some weird bar that's at the top of a hotel or something. 
and they'd be like, oh, oh my, my gosh, God. come up to our our rooftop lounge and we'll watch the Blood Moon together. So, you know, like, you know how, like, um, like, Hemingway and all those, like, other writers would, like, meet up and, like, dine in, like, French cafes and, like, discuss things with each other and drink. Mm-hmm. I want to do that, but with, like, Neil Gaiman, <laughs> Grant Morrison, um... I would love to just have see Alan Moore just like smoking in the corner, not talking to anyone. <laughs> oh, I, you know what? I will tell you this on mic right now. I had a good, jo- I, I made a good joke about Alan Moore earlier okay. today because, because I was like, I, I saw something that someone was getting mad about. Someone was getting mad about disrespecting Alan Moore mm. again. Someone and someone said, like, Alan Moore is... Oh, the context was, like, someone had praised Watchmen and V for Vendetta as the best live-action superhero film adaptations. Okay. Um, and knowing Alan Moore, who famously hates <laughs> um, someone tweeted, like, Alan Moore is rolling in his grave. And I was He's like, wait dead. a second. He's not dead. But Alan Moore would be the guy <laughs> to dig himself a grave and go roll around. That's in true. It. <laughs> he would. He would. You're right. <laughs> he would. Or like, just like have a coffin custom built and <laughs> just roll around in it. I'm sure. I'm sure Alan Moore owns a coffin. I'm 98% sure that Alan Moore owns a coffin. I'm 98% sure that Grant Morrison owns a coffin. But. I mean, but they do so much occult shit that, like, they, they've got to have, like, uh, Morrison has to have, like, a library where they, like, store all their occult things, right? Yeah, no, I think that um, they have, like, a gallery, like, in um, uh, the first episode of the Sandman Netflix show, where there's just, like, stuff everywhere oh, in glass cases. Yeah. I agree. I think, I think all of those, like, all of those... British Isles comic writers that got huge in the 80s and 90s. They all have galleries, I think. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, but back to back to Sandman. Yes. Um, it's, ni- it's 87. It's 1987. Neil Gaiman's working as a journalist and writing fiction on the side. And he submits a Swamp Thing story to Karen Berger. And it gets published and... And, oh, oh! You're pulling out another <laughs> thing. Are you fat? Am I getting fat? No, no. I was seeing if there's anything I could help. Um, if I could. Uh... Oh, I'm. I got most of this from the introduction by Karen Berger in my Sandman 30th anniversary trade. Okay. Um, Which is isn't that a wild basically... introduction? Because she's like, she's like, yeah, the first few like eight issues they weren't very good, but he really found his voice after that. <laughs> We okay. I have to talk. I have something in my notes about that. I have something in my notes about that. Um, but so like he submits that he sends the Swamp Thing story, and what how Karen Berger describes him is he's like persistent. He's got like the journalist sensibilities. Like he just keeps hounding her about like when's it going to get published? When's it going to get published? And then she meets him at like a scouting event in London, and he pitches a couple of different things to her. 
Um, one of it, which would become Black Orchid, which is like that's what I was looking the up. spirit. <laughs> that's what I was looking up. Uh, Black <laughs> uh, the spiritual like precursor to Sandman. Um, another was like a revival of the original JSA Sandman, the Wesley Dodds Sandman, and then the third was a John Constance, Constantine story. Um, which was axed immediately because this was when Jamie Delano was prepping Hellblazer stuff. Um, and so they do Black Orchid, and then Neil comes back with this Sandman idea again. And he he really pitches, like, it has to be, it's going to be about, like, dreams and the dream world and focusing all on that. And so they decide to not use the Wesley Dodd Sandman or the other one that's in between the two of them. Um, and they create a new character, um, Dream or Morpheus or goes by a lot of names, the King of Dreams. And Neil gets to work with artists such as um, I have a team that he that is credited for this issue specifically Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III on the art. Um, Sam Keith started out working on the art, but then left after a couple issues. Um, Daniel Vozo was doing all the colors. Um, Todd Klein was lettering it. And then Dave McKean was the cover mm -hmm. artist. And that's something I think I want to shout out. We don't shout out covers a lot on this podcast. Uh, oh, you have, you, have, you have more... Visual I do. I have cool. the um, dust covers. It's called. It's all of the covers from 1989 to 1997. The collected Sandman covers. Oh my god! It's really cool. I found it at half price books for like 25 bucks. Um, so let me. I think it was on page 24. While while he's looking for that, shout out to half price books because. <laughs> uh, I will say that I, I will say this right now. Um, I found two of my new favorite purchases I've ever made Ooh. from a half price books literally just today. Ooh, what'd you get? Um, I got the first volume of the Batman by Grant Morrison omnibus for less than fifty bucks, nice. and that thing that thing originally retailed at seventy five, so it was a huge steal. Um, the second volume was like thirty seven ninety five, and I was almost like, "Ooh, do I get this yeah. too?" But I own all of the Batman and Robin stuff already. Uh, but then I also found this essential, like, esset one of the Marvel, like, black and white essential paperback things. But it was for Dazzler. For the, for the X-Men character Dazzler, who was created as a disco-themed mutant. Oh my god, really? It was... No. Okay. Okay. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for X Month 2023. I have a lot to say about Dazzler because <laughs> I have become a huge Dazzler fan recently uh. because she's just so fun and and uh, and her whole thing is like she is a mutant who creates like who has like photokinetic abilities mm. and I think light or photokinesis superpowers are some of the most interesting abilities a character can have. They don't get used mm. much. Like, I can think of Dazzler, Cloak and Dagger for over at Marvel, and then Duke Thomas is, like, the only DC rep I can think of. 
who like has any sort of light manipulation abilities. But that's a whole nother story. Cole, what were you yes, saying? So here I'll flip my I mean, this is doing nothing for the listeners. But I'll flip my camera around if I can figure out how to do that. So that you can see the cover for this issue. Um Oh shit, that's right. So this is the cover for that's what twenty four hours. Um, the center is black and it almost looks like an x-ray of hands, like going up to cover somebody's face. Like there's a bunch of shrapnel flying at you or something. And then the sides, there is little squares and columns of six faces. Um, I mean, just go look it up. It's for issue number six, which is 24 hours. Yeah, I think it's issue six. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's one that's made out of a creepy, like baby mask. That's got a stopwatch, uh, in front of it. Um, there's another, I assume it's an x-ray of a, a skull. There's a face made out of a broken mug. There's a face made out of, it almost looks like a, a jar. Um, there's an actual photograph of a few faces, um, there's this really creepy one that's like a photograph of a face overlaid with like glasses over the mouth with blood coming out. And I can't really tell what's on top of the eyes, but Dave McKean's incredible. And the way he creates art is endlessly fascinating. He does a mixture of I... illustration and photography and digital effects. It's, it's really, really cool. It's worth looking up. I wish I had done more research into how he makes his covers. I can see if there's anything at the beginning and of this book. <laughs> Cole, I'm get, next time I'm in Milwaukee, I'm borrowing that book. <laughs> okay. Um, so, let's talk about like the early run of Sandman for a second, because Karen Berger has that point where she's like, oh, it it struggles a second for it according to her and according to like neil they're not they're like proud of the early issues but they're not like as proud as what comes later i yeah. think because like the main arc and this is sort of i haven't finished the netflix series but this is sort of like following the general season arc of that of uh morpheus has been imprisoned by roderick burgess and these other Victorian fiends. <laughs> not just... Not fiends in, like, the demonic sense, but... But, like, just assholes. Yeah. And then is held for almost a century. And then... And then, um... He is freed. And he goes to recover his... His gear, his... His mask, his... His his pouch and his ruby and then try to like revitalize his kingdom mm -hmm. that he shares with like Cain and Abel. Yes. <clears throat> Which I forgot. I forget that Cain and Abel are characters in the Sandman sometimes. You know what's really cool about that? Um, and I think you, you sent me a photo of the introduction where Neil talks about this. Um, but he wanted to do the first few issues as different kinds of horror because that's kind of what he was writing for at the time. Before it became fully Vertigo, it was like a horror title. And so each issue was supposed to be a different genre of horror. And one of them was right. 
DC used to do, or maybe it was before they integrated, it was a different company called EC Comics, and they had these, oh, like, yeah, EC horror hosts. It was like a Tales from the Crypt type of thing, where it was... Tales from the Crypt, uh... This was big in like the fifties and sixties and for and later for a while, but like all big publishers had like horror anthology books. Like that's what like half the Marvel hero titles started out really? as. Like Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, oh. Journey into Mystery were all like those anthology titles. Okay. Books. And and I need to I need to add an addendum to a previous episode. Oh, right okay. There. Um, in a previous episode, we talked about the comic Catwoman meets Sylvester and Tweet. <laughs> and there is a collection in the opening. The main antagonists are the Looney Tunes witch, Witch Hazel, and then three other witches. Um, but most strikingly, one of them is a witch with like a plat with like platinum blonde hair, and she keeps it up in a headband. And I did my research back then and was like, oh, yeah, they are minor hosts of this DC horror anthology comic called The Witching okay. Hour. What I did not know at the time was that they show up in Sandman. Are they the Fates? That's the so fates. cool. Those three are the oh, that's, so that's what I was about to say is that there were these horror hosts who were these characters that were always the same, like your introduction to, well, now we'll tell you a tale that will chill your blood. Um, They're just... They're just all the Crypt Keeper in different right. haunts. And um, Cain, Abel, and I don't know if Eve was. I think Eve might be, yeah, quote-unquote, an invention of Neil's. But so was Lucian, the librarian. They were all horror oh, hosts. Shit. And apparently so were the go the uh, witches who b were the fates. And I just think that's brilliant. That's, that's cool. Yeah. So that this is actually a great sort of place to... Um, talk about this before getting into like the main meat of the of 24 hours um but the way neil integrates the main dc universe into this early sandman and like he mentions in his afterward in the 30th anniversary trade that he feels like it could have been better that it was like kind of a failure especially like the justice league stuff mm. he thinks but i think it's really handled immaculately because like that recontextualization that you're talking about like these horror hosts are all denizens of the dream world they all like touch on nightmares and stuff especially as morpheus in the role of the prince of stories and the yes. house of secrets yes. and the house of mysteries being cain and abel's respective things it's so another, cool another thing about that house of mysteries house of secrets they were those were also DC. Oh, titles. really? Were they the horror host titles, the EC comics, or they? Those were like so. It was like Witching Hour, House of Mystery, House of okay. Secrets. Those were like DCs, so, I believe. That's so brilliant. <laughs> um, hugely brilliant, and like, and I believe one of them is where Swamp Thing was first created really? for. I could be I could be completely wrong, but Swamp Thing is one of those characters that was like created for one of those horror anthology titles, cool. in much in like the same vein of like over at Marvel, like 
Werewolf by Night, Dracula, Moon Knight, Man-Thing, Morbius, Blade, all sort of got... Marvel was publishing horror titles in the 70s, but they became, like, very superhero horror, trying to get past, like, the comics code and stuff. So, like, that's why, like, Morbius is a living vampire. And that's the only time I'm ever going to talk about Morbius. You don't want to cover the Morbius film? (laughs) No, absolutely not. I don't want to... I'll cover, maybe, I'll, I'll, I'll just shout out my friend's musical that he wrote about Mor- Morbius again. <laughs> it's called, it's, it's called, it's Morbius. Oh, no. Um, Morpheus, Morpheus from the Matrix is the narrator of that musical. <laughs> oh, boy, that's, that sounds really fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's fun. Um, I think it's still available to stream. I don't know. Well, uh, I'll, maybe, I don't know. Um. But yeah, so Neil integrates a lot of the DC universe into these early issues of Sandman. Um, one huge one we will save for the actual discussion of the issue. Um, but another big thing, um, Morpheus meets Etrigan, the demon Etrigan in hell when he goes to hell to retrieve his pouch. Mm-hmm. And you get... Probably one of my favorite Jack Kirby creations of of the de- the Demon Etrigan is such an interesting character, and I love that here like he's completely like here this Etrigan doesn't have like the Jason Blood alter ego. No, this is the full demon, and he is like a guardian. And this is where you also meet like the triumvirate of Hell or whatever right. they're doing at Which, this point. A quick sidebar. Is that, was that something that was going on in Hellblazer and that's why he included it? Because I know he and Jamie Delano were like talking and making sure that things worked in Hell so that it was in the same, most, mostly continuity, because that just seems like such a big thing, like to leave out. I'm like, I want to go find the comic that that happens in. Hellblazer is kind of, Hellblazer, much like Sandman, is one of those like huge epic things that like. I want to read, but it's so hard to get Mm. into because there's just so much of it. Because unlike Sandman, Hellblazer pretty much didn't end until about, like, when, like, Vertigo was lumped back into, like, the main... All the Vertigo titles was lumped back into the main DC publishing. Hellblazer just kept running. Mm. And more and more writers took over like i know there's like a like either a garth ennis or warren ellis run on hellblazer or i think morrison i think neil gaiman did some hellblazer for i know i don't know if he was like a staff writer but i know he wrote an issue or two yes but hellblazer was like one of the hellblazer hellblazer is very much like doctor who in the Mm. sense where like if you are a famous british writer you have written at least one story <laughs> for this big franchise. Okay. That's fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but so, yeah, so he meets Edrigan in hell. There's the whole issue where he's just hanging out with John Constantine. Mm-hmm. And you really get like, I wish there, I, you know what? I wish there was, I know... Because now at the point, like, all the Sandman stuff has pretty much been, like, splintered off into its own Sandman universe More or less, now. yeah. 
more, more or less, and there's still, like, titles being published with, like, either Gaiman writing them or his, like, direct supervision yeah. helping guide them. I know... I know G. Willow Wilson, who's one of my favorite comic writers, she was writing something for for it for a Ooh. while. Um, I think she was writing like the main endless title or something. Um I wish we had time to talk about the endless, but they haven't shown up yet in, in what we've read. Not yet. We'll get there. <laughs> um But but like the constant of like one of the few Sandman characters that like still makes relatively sparse appearances in the DC universe is death really i know that she has her own two at least graphic novels i didn't know that she stowed up in like main continuity stuff here's my here's my first exposure to um death and specifically all of sandman through death are you familiar um with like the big uh black as night event do you know anything about it so it's so it's a great it was like big green lantern event Think zombie apocalypse, but with the Green Lantern rings. But but it was like the Black Lanterns reviving the corpses of dead heroes. And oh no! And yeah, and and like each heart they ripped out, that husk of a body became a new Black Lantern. Ooh. Um, it's freaky, and it was like at the time when a lot of huge characters were dead. So like a lot of the tie-ins were characters facing off against like zombie bruce wayne zombie ted cord zombie maxwell lord all these like big figures in the dc universe that were just zombie green lanterns but so in that story hal jordan activates like a a a failsafe protocol that like deputizes a bunch of heroes and villains of earth as members of the different lantern cores so like you get wonder woman as a star sapphire you get mira of atlantis as a red lantern of rage um barry allen becomes a blue lantern of hope wow but most importantly lex luther becomes an orange lantern of avarice and like he feels the power of like greed coursing through him with this ring and but that he's drawn to like the black ring's ability to resurrect the dead and so there's this mini series called the black ring where he like post black as night where he goes and like tries to research the origins of the black lantern ring and stuff and death shows up to like tell him hey you are fucking with the laws of nature please stop and so my first exposure to to death and to the sandman as, as a whole was this interaction with lex <laughs> wow what a roundabout way to get there yeah it's weird it, it it was weird but so you get the constantine issue you get that and then the big one right before 24 hours is it's been told to morpheus or dream that his ruby his dreamstone is in a justice league warehouse mm-hmm. somewhere or is in possession of the justice league and so he shows up in the dreams of one Scott Free, a.k.a. Mr. Miracle, who has no idea what's going on because he's a new he's a new member of the team. And so he gets the only member that is around from the Silver Age, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. 
And what happens what happens with Jean in this moment? Um he goes to him and um Jean immediately gets down on his knees and he's like, "Oh lord, you're here." And um uh I almost said Neil. Dream um <laughs> Dream I mean, um says, "Oh wow, I didn't know that there were any Martians left. I thought you were all gone." Um and yeah. he's like, "Oh, I don't really know where your stone is. Um it might be in the uh our uh our storage facility in uh in Mayhew, Delaware. <laughs> Mayhew, Delaware. And I I love that, that he is... says, "Um I thought maybe we could put it on display, but that's kind of hokey." <laughs> you know what? Jean, you have your priorities. <laughs> you have you have it. I love it. Um but so leading into 24 hours there's this race almost between dream and another character who ends up getting the ruby before dream and that character is john d dr destiny dr destiny yes the formerly known as the supervillain dr destiny who was a obscure silver age justice league villain who after this, I think has never, or only rarely shown up in main continuity, because, and and like he's shown up in a couple of the cartoons, but like even before Sandman, he like was not a big heavy hitter villain for the Justice League. He's just mm. like a he's like a, a an occult magician guy. I for the longest time thought he was Felix Faust, who was a different occult magician villain. Hmm. But no, Doctor Destiny. His whole thing was like he's like Doctor. He looks like Doctor Doom, but has like a skull mask instead. <laughs> it's not. It, he's not an original character. He's not a very original character until Neil gets his hands on him. Because what what we see of John D before this is he is pretty much reduced to a corpse, rotting away in Arkham Asylum. And, and he, it, he mentions that whatever the Justice League did to him, they took away his ability to dream. Yeah. Which I like that that ties into the bigger theme of the series that, like, especially in the 80s with AIDS and just every, like, the sociopolitical moment, everything was just going to hell. Yeah. And it's because Morpheus has been away for so long that people, like, there's something wrong with the world and it's being felt. And I like that you see that more directly with D and how he's just like a walking skeleton with yeah. just shreds of hair. And he like, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't really eat. It's crazy. Can I talk about his roommate for a second? His roommate in Arkham. <laughs> Please I love, do. I have a story I about it too. I love that he's roommates with the Scarecrow. I love the, I'd watch like an odd couple type <laughs> sitcom with John D and John Crane it would be really fun. Um, so when Neil originally wrote that, he wanted it to be the Joker. And he actually wrote it as the Joker. And then when it got to Karen, she, there was, I don't know, I'm sure there still is, a system of, like, making sure that everything flows with continuity. And they called over the people who were running Batman, and they're like, nah, sorry, the Joker's just disappeared from Gotham. Yeah. And she was like, sorry, Neil, you can't use the Joker. And he's like, but why? Why can't it just... It doesn't matter. Yeah, this <laughs> and they're is like, like, nope, that sucks. And that's when he started to kind of give up on tying in, like, 
stuff from like the current continuity yeah. because he's like it's just too much trouble every time i try to do it it would bite me in the ass because i have to rewrite something last minute can i quick sidebar about my favorite um later thing that i got spoiled for me um sure um that ties in it's i think it's one of the other times he ties in a very obscure dc character do you know the issue where um prez prez rickard shows up yes that's one of my favorites you you know he is an original dc creation from like the 70s right yeah yeah like created specifically for like when the voting age was like lowered to 18 he's like the first teenage president Mm -hmm. and then we'll do that can we well cole I'm I'm declaring it right now. Let's do that issue next Halloween because <laughs> that's not Halloweeny at all. No, Boss Smiley's pretty scary. <laughs> that's true. Boss Smiley's pretty scary. Um, but yeah. So, what John D does with the ruby, this dreamstone? He also has a device called, and I love comic books sometimes, called the Materiopticon. Which, like, gives physical form to dreams, and he's able to, like, amplify the power of the dreamstone. Mm-hmm. And so, he goes into a diner and sits for 24 hours. And the issue, 24 hours, is what happens when he goes in. Mm-hmm. And let's quick just run down the characters of 24 hours, because... You have John D, and you have Morpheus at the very end. Yeah, but like the I last will go, panel. I, yeah, the last panel. But I will go through the characters um, right here. Um, and I wrote a little spiel about them in my notes. Um, you have uh, Betty, a waitress who engages in semi-voyeurism by observing her customers and writing stories stories about them, dreaming she'll become a famous writer. Uh, you have Judy, who's a young lesbian who the night before gets in a fight with her girlfriend Donna while also dealing with, like, the general homophobia of this time period and this small town of Delaware. Um, you have Mark, who's this young man who has a job interview but, like, dreams he's going to become a su- successful biz- businessman. Um, you have Gary and Kate, who are, like, this married couple that, like, they were young lovebirds, but now the marriage is starting to sour. And then you have Marsh, who's like this out-of-work mailman who his wife died of like alcoholism or consumption after she discovered he was having a secret affair with Betty, the waitress. And so the whole issue is just watching these six people go mad, pretty much. Yeah. And it's awful. <laughs> I mean, it's it's, it's written really well, but it's it, awful. Extremely well, well written, well paced, well presented. Um, it's broken up into like what happens each hour, and mm-hmm. I think like that narration really adds to it. It, it feels very Twilight Zoney, doesn't doesn't it? It does. Yeah, because it's, like, it's just horror piled on horror. <laughs> it's like more malevolent Twilight Zone because, like, at least a lot of the Twilight Zones had, like, a central theme or moral or something to let that was, like, framed the horror around. 
This is just depravity and violence and disturbing horror. Yeah. Um, I have a list to get to help guide our conversation. I have a list of some of the most disturbing things that happen in this book and we can sort of like just go through them. All right. Hit me. Um, so first thing I have is like the first time Mark tries to leave the diner, Mm. the bit where he's like, Oh shit, I have to go to my job interview gets up, pauses for a second. And is like, sits back down, asks for another cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. That was really scary to me for a second. Like, yeah. one of my big, like, fear trigger things is, like, loss of body autonomy and loss of, like, control over your own free will. Right. And it, it freaks me out. And, like, just watching this guy be like, oh, shit, I have to go? And then calm it, calmly, sheepishly sitting back down. Yeah. And then it's Gary freaky. and Kate at the other booth, Gary keeps saying, I'm just saying it's weird that no one else has come in. It, it seems like we, we've been here for hours, but, but it also feels like we just walked in. Like, it's, it's that very, like, no exit thing of, like, the people in the waiting room waiting for something. And you start to, like, really tap into the fear of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, next thing I had in my notes, um, like, Judy's, Judy's whole arc in this is heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, she gets in a fight with her girlfriend, calls her girlfriend. She beats her up. Yep. She's abusive during yes, the fight. Yes, she is abusive. She's abusive, yep. Um... Tries to apologize, but is met on the phone with Donna's mother. Um, is really driven to tragedy. Um, gets beaten up by the other people in the diner while they, they're yelling homophobic slurs. Right. Um, and, like, it's, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, it's, and you have it, the, when she's trying to write um, a, uh, a letter where she's trying to apologize... She yeah. also, like, you see her trying to deal with the fact that she did abuse her, and she's yeah. trying to, like, justify it, but also explain it, but, you know, and, yeah, and like, that's you, really hard of, to see, too. Some of these characters, most of these characters are not good people in, mm-hmm. that that John D is, like, playing with and torturing here, but, like, you, it regardless of, like, even, like, they're monsters, and, like, they're bad people, but you still feel for them because they lose that autonomy. They lose all their free will. Yeah. And like, cause like Marsh cheated on his wife. Betty's a voyeur. Um, Gary and Kate have a lot of things going on. Uh, Judy's abusive to Donna. Um, Mark is the only one we, we don't like learn anything really dark about, but that's just cause he's kind of like a blank slate. Like, a very everyman type. Right. When he does, like, when his dreams are fulfilled, um, you see that he's, I don't know, he seems kind of greedy. He's a capitalist. All he wants, yeah, is just to be rolling in cash. Yeah, like, that's the thing. He's he's very, like, self-interest first. And even, like, that is bad. Yeah, like, and... But none of them are awful people i mean everyone has faults yeah they're like like 
Judy is probably, like, with the abuse angle of it, like, Judy is probably the worst of everyone in that group. More or less. More or less. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, But then, then, um, you have the, this, this next bit that I, that I, that I have to mention is the scary, is the, the, the page that really cemented this is the scariest comic you're ever going to read, Jackson Heyman. <laughs> it's when John D. turns on the television. Oh, yeah. And and it's the kid. <laughs> it's the kids' show. Mm-hmm. And oh my god, why can't I get? Well, I don't know why I'm laughing. I don't. <laughs> it's the only way to deal with it. <laughs> it's the only way to deal with how disturbing this is. <laughs> and the man's talking to his puppet. And the puppet tells the man to slice his wrists. And and he tells the kids at home, you should do the same thing. And then slices, slices, slits his wrists. But you only focus on the puppet that's on his wrist. And you watch blood come from the puppet. And it's disturbing and it's scary. And it really cements that it's not that this shit is not just happening in the diner. This is happening at least statewide. Yeah, and that, then you get news breaks um, later in the um, I don't remember which hour, but later in the issue, the news anchors start to say like, "Oh, this thing happened with this children's entertainer who's known for this puppet," and then more reports start trickling in from all around the world, all around the, the country, and then all the, around the world of madness. And anyone who even has any sort of um, um, any mental disbalance, I think it's called, um, is just being tipped over the edge. And then like it's it's everybody. Yeah, and it's just like. It's so horrible. <laughs> it's horrifying. Um, next in my list of disturbing moments from this comic, um, there's the bit where D makes them all praise him and worship him, and then Mark cuts off his finger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't remember... It's in the Audible, um, because a lot of the like actual script that Neil wrote is used as narration. Oh, so shit. I can't remember. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, but I can't remember if it's in the actual comic or not. But um, D like licks some of the blood, and he's like, the the narration is um, D doesn't uh, particularly enjoy this, but a king should not seem ungracious towards sacrifices. Holy shit! Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. This is it, it's here. It's here. Okay. It's here. <laughs> Um, Ugh, it's so gross. He licks the blood from the man's finger. A god must not appear ungracious toward a sacrifice. Yeah. However, he derives no satisfaction from it. Um, what else in my list? Um, we touched on this briefly already. Um, the entire crowd, specifically March, uh, beats up Judy while mm-hmm. uh, yelling homophobic slurs. Yeah. Ju- it, it's... Again, not a very disturbing sort of thing he's forcing them to do. Yeah. Um, and then he, D, like, he he really plays with them. Like, he, at one point, 
makes them feel their greatest dreams. He walks around in their minds to, like, see their desires and stuff. He tells them the story of Snow White at one point while all of them, all the patrons are, like, reduced to being, like, behaving like children Mm -hmm. and, like, sitting cross-legged in front of him. Um... He forces them to confess their darkest secrets. Yeah, and there's some dark ones. There's some very dark ones. Um, spinning right off of that, the bit where Marsh confesses his sins, yeah. as he is, he talks about the affair he had with Betty, while Betty crucifies him. Well, not only that, he also talks about how when he went went to prison because he was stealing from the mail. Um, yeah. He, oh yeah! Oh yeah! He, he meets Betty's son, who was um, working oh, as a that's prostitute. Right. That's right. And then went to prison because he stabbed his pimp. Yeah. And then um, he says, "You could, you could have sex with your son because he, I don't know. He found a new pimp, or maybe he's yep. just working as a prostitute in the prison um, yep. for a pack of cigarettes." And I did. Yeah, and. Ugh. This is happening while Betty is driving nails into his hands into the diner counter. Yeah. And Um, then he, uh, speaking of loss of bodily autonomy, he also makes them be intimate with each other. Oh, I was getting... Oh, I'm sorry. That was my my next part. That was my next point. If you want to go further with it. Well, I mean, first of all, that's absolutely disgusting. Yeah, because like, he's forcing people to be intimate without their consent. No consent and lack of autonomy. And speaking of lack of autonomy, I'm pretty sure that Judy is having sex with a man. Yep. Which is even more horrifying, you know, because she's not attracted to men and that it completely takes away her agency. And yep. I think it... I. I mean, there's probably a discussion to be had about, like, writing is Neil taking away their agency, but I think that becomes part of the horror. Yeah. Um, where, like, it's it's D that's doing the horrible thing, not Neil. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's horrifying. Just to inject some, some levity into this section here. <laughs> Please do. I need to talk about the most disturbing part of this in context. This, this scene specifically... D is sitting on the counter and he's like, he's in a big trench coat and like really all you can see is like his skeleton face and all he can say while he watches this, neat, neat. Yeah. And it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And out of context, that panel of John D just saying neat is (laughs) is really funny. That should become a meme. (laughs) It's... No, I was literally telling a friend, like, out of, in context, this is one of the most horrifying, disturbing panels in this issue of Sandman. Out of context, it's just a funny reaction image. (laughs) Um, what's next on my, we're just running through, we're running the gamut of, will, will this episode break the record for most content warnings, I have to add? Oh, I'm sure it will. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, uh, murder in the dark, straight Ugh. up panels of black with just like text bubbles of pain screams. Speaking of which, when I was listening to it, 
the voice, like I said, I listened to the Audible earlier today, and the voices sounded like, I mean, there was a scream, I couldn't tell whose it was, but I don't think anyone is dead in the next hour. Oh. Is anyone dead, or were they just playing stab in the dark, where I no one is actually so. murdered? I don't think so. Because Marsh, um, Gary, and um, um, whatever his name, White Bread Boy. Um, oh, Mark. Mark, um, they're all still in the next hour, in the next game. Kate is, I think... No, yeah, Kate, Judy, and Betty are all alive, too, so I don't think anyone was actually killed. Um, I don't know if quickly, you can tell. I am just, I am just looking up. Um, I'm... Is there... Do you know if there's a cast list for this specific episode? Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Because I, I want to know. Yeah, I want to know who played these. Who played these characters? Yes. Be- let me find the PDF. Because I think it would be. I think it because if knowing the Sandman audio cast, um, like it's got huge pulls. Um, I just I need to know who played these characters specifically. These, I think, are um, more voice actors than celebrities. Oh, um, cool. But you, you may know some of them. That's cool. That's cool, um, So, Samantha Beart as Judy and Mary. I don't know who Mary is. Mary Gentian. Um, mm. Lawrence Bovar as Kate. Sandra Dickinson as Betty. Toby Longworth as Gary, Ray Porter as Mark, Michael Roberts as the newscaster, and Carrie Shale as Marsh. Okay, I I sure they I'm sure they have very storied voice actor voice acting careers. <laughs> right. Holy shit! Kristen Shaw was Delirium. Yeah, she's so great. Wait, I gotta see who the endless. Oh well. While you look for that, I'll I'll regale the listeners with who the endless are. Yeah, they I, are... I am I am looking up the endless right now. Um, honestly, actually, just say them to me, and I I'm gonna have a little freak out. Um, do you want to know the actors as well? Uh, yeah, give me give me the actors. That's okay, what, that's so, what I meant. Oh, okay. So in in birth order, destiny, which is um, oh, I'm gonna I'm not gonna be able to think of any names right now. He's in James Bond and Hunger Games. Hold on, um, I have he, it right he, here. I. Uh, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, yes, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wright, Wright. Destiny. Um, then we have Kat Dennings as Death. Which is cool, which I think is great. Um, also, shout out Kirby Howell Baptiste. Oh, she's so good. In the Netflix series. Wonderful. Um, then we who's, have who's um, um, James McAvoy as Dream. Yes. Incredible, um, incredible casting both times It's be- Dream has been cast. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have to look up their name. Um, well, I can't uh, Jeff- tell you that I can't tell you who's next because that's kind of a spoiler for one of the books. I bet I guess we could, but who, who? Uh, um, just well, they haven't been cast yet. Um, but uh, oh, who hasn't um, been cast? The the member of the endless is kind of a spoiler. Oh, right. From brief lives. So um, I know. I is it. I will I will edit this out. Is it destruction? Yes, it is. Okay, so destruction yeah. hasn't been cast, and we will put like 
a censor bar over that for the people who don't want to get spoiled. Sounds good. Um, um, and then Desire is played by a wonderful actor named Justin Vivian Bond. They're I awesome. Will, I will also say um, Justin Vivian Bond's great. Mason Alexander Park. I have not finished the Netflix season, but incredible from what they I've seen. They rock. They're so um, good. Um, Miriam Margulies plays Despair. And then Christian Skull as um, Delirium. So good. So cool. Um, yeah. But so quick tangent on the endless over. But um, Gary and Mark get reduced to wild animals, basically. Yeah. Well, they as, all are. Well, they're all. Yeah. They're, it's like. And that narration is, like, written as, like, a na- nature documentary almost. And, like, mm-hmm. it's freaky how it's framed. Right. And it's even more dehumanizing of them. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really interesting to look at, like, the psyche of Dr. D. Because, like, I can only assume this is how he sees the world. And he sees it as very, like, binary. Like, men are aggressive and men, like, own yeah. women. And women are subjective. Yeah, Which he is sees also it as a, a form of horror. Yeah, he sees it as a very like animalistic, like survival of the fittest type thing. Um, I want to talk quick pause to talk about John D's worldview for a second. Um, he's here like reduced to like almost like a childlike sense of wonder at the depravity he is he is causing. Mm-hmm. Like he reacts to it just like neat or he laughs like there's there's bits where he's just laughing while this all is happening yeah um you have the bit where like they're asking where he restores their autonomy for a second and all they can do is just ask why (sighs) he's doing this and he's just like why because i can it's horrifying it's really horrifying um there's a bit at the very end of the issue where Dream finally shows up and he's and D's like, oh, you're here. I was starting to get bored. Right, because they've been dead for like an hour or two. Yeah. And so he's just been sitting there. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I have one more horrifying thing to talk about. Um, Please do. When Judy gouges out her eyes. Oh, God, right. Ah. Yeah. How? And it's... It's in the context of, like, I'm going to see the light. I'm going to see the truth, like the holy truth. And then she throws nails into her eyes or something. Eye torture, eye harm is scary on all levels. But, like, when it's framed as, like, you do that to see the truth, to see the light. Because that's done in so much horror. And, like, oh, I don't like it. I don't like it. No, it's real bad. Um, he also asks, um, Judy, Kate, and Betty to be the fates and tell him his future. He consults, he consults them as, like, oracles, then he makes them dance for him. Oh, right. Makes them do, like, a striptease for him. It's horrifying. Um, that's pretty much the issue. (laughs) Yeah. The... It's just a, but it's like a very much a character study on John D, mm-hmm. and like how he will do anything to 
achieve or, essentially nothing. It yeah, he's it's a complete act of nihilism because he nothing of none of this matters. He's just doing it because he has the ability to. He has the power to. Right. And I think in a lot of superhero stories, you kind of run into like the same old trope of like Lex Luthor wants to rule the world, but like why does Lex Luthor want to rule the world? And that always becomes like a motivation problem. With D, there is no motivation problem because there's not really any reason. He just wants to cause pain and destruction, and and he doesn't want to rule for any reason, really. I He just I wants to the- rule. Yeah, I have a theory about this. Okay. Um, this is This is sort of like a binary. It works two ways. I think the scariest antagonists in any story are the ones who have no motivation and just do this because they have the power and ability to. Mm. But also I feel like that can also lead to some of the stupidest antagonists in a, mm. in any piece of media. Um, for example, um, I'm just going to draw a Marvel connection here. Carnage. Carnage mm. is a mass murderer who kills because he likes killing hmm. and doesn't really have motivation or reason behind the people that he kills. And I don't like carnage. I don't, I don't really like carnage. I think I, I will talk one day about why I don't really care for like venom and carnage or the symbiotes, but that's not, this is not the time or place. <laughs> but you don't like him. We know I that. Like, I don't <laughs> like him. But, like, where Carnage fails, I think John D. like, really works. Yeah. Because in they're both just the same. The, the, motivations, the senselessness? Motivations and how they see, like, the, how they view killing and chaos and all this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. they, they're both very much characters who, like, who, like, really revel in violence and depravity but we're like carnage is just stupid like i think it's i think it's all just a matter of overexposure because we've mm. seen so much more of carnage than we've seen of john d sure and like there's no i hope there won't be any big major events where john d is revealed to be like an eldritch god or something because i'd hate that i hate that um but but yeah, but John D sort of has like an interesting not redemption, but like I I don't know the right word, but like his his wrap up in the next issue after this. Yeah, I wanted is, to ask it, you about that. And, and yeah. your thoughts on it. Um do you want to summarize it just to like let the audience know and let me re- remind me a bit about it? Sure. So Dream gets there and he says, what do you think you're doing? And he's like, I'm going to become the new Dream Lord. My ruby sucked more power out of you when you tried to use it and I'm going to use it to kill you. And Dream says, okay, well then you're going to fight me in dreams. Mm -hmm. And so Dream disappears and um, D goes into dreams and very like dream logic kind of stumbles his way through a Roman arena and then... He says that he had a dream about raping his mother, and his mother shows up, and she's like, you had what? Um, and then 
someone's trying to hurt him and he uses the dreamstone to make them go away and he realizes he's in dreams and then very much like lucid dreaming he's like oh this is a dream i can do whatever i want and he starts blasting around the dreaming with using the power of the stone which was used to create the dreaming which means it can be used to uncreate the dreaming mm-hmm. and finally morpheus is like stop stop you're hurting the dreamers you're hurting the sleeping um those who've survived the the horrible night that just happened because d has been used using the the um stone to make everybody go mad and actually that's oops that's how the um the the issue opens is with like listen you can hear it you can hear this poor homeless man screaming because his face is being eaten away by oven cleaner listen you can hear the the children who are laughing because they threw it on him um and then it goes to a 911 operator and and she's like 911 what's your emergency and she just starts crying because she knows she doesn't have any more ambulances to send there aren't any more people who can go and help but the calls just keep coming and coming and then we transition into the fight and um d is using the power of the stone to destroy the dreaming essentially and morpheus is like stop you have to stop please the power of the ruby is deteriorating your mind and he's like i i he d figures out that he can use the stone to suck up morpheus essentially and to suck his power up because when dream created it he put a lot of his power into the stone and as he's about to kill him he crushes the stone because he thinks he's crushing dream's life out in his fist and then it goes to just a white panel with him in the center and he's like huh i i won wow I, i just never i thought when i won there'd be applause and this is one of go ahead yeah he's very much in like a white void of like that like that one spongebob episode where like squidward's alone is that <laughs> is that a reference you'll get Cole? i i, I vaguely like, remember that like yeah like he's very much in the alone squidward void um <laughs> but but he's like he's he's like oh that's it that yeah. that's how it, that's how it ends right and and he says um something who i think is so funny he's like huh i'll be a i'll be a just ruler who will dispense justice towards the wicked and send dreams to rip out their minds to to all the evildoers or anyone i don't like <laughs> just like like a little or or anybody who i i don't like but it's funny i i just thought when i won when i became king there'd be applause <laughs> and then it's one of the coolest like reveals i think um that you you turn the page and you realize that the white that we've been seeing is the palm of Morpheus's hand. Which and is Morpheus coolest, is now huge. The coolest fucking reveal. It really is. It's so cool. Um, yeah. And I, Morpheus... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, that... Keep, keep going. Uh, Morpheus says, thank you. Uh, it, it had been so long. It had been so many eons since I created the stone that I, I didn't realize how much of my power was actually in it. By crushing it, you released it all and it came back to me. And I'm, I'm back to my full strength. And then 
Dia's like, oh, well, are you, are you going to kill me? And then this is kind of a discussion for maybe a little bit later in the episode, but definitely when we cover Sandman again, um, that Morpheus says, I could if I wanted to. Hmm. You know, you, you, you've harmed my person and Dream is very haughty. Um, mm-hmm. and, and very much like it's hard to grasp his sense of what's right and what's wrong. And he's, I mean, he's not a morally ambiguous character by any sense, but he has so much pride and so much like you could have done something there and you chose not to. And it's very interesting that you made the choice you did. Um, and this is one of those examples. Um, he's like, you hurt my person. You hurt the dreaming. Nothing that I can't repair, but you should be punished for that. And then what he decides to do is just to take him back to Arkham. And they meet Scarecrow there. And and Scarecrow's like, oh my god, it, 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 I'm so glad you're back. <laughs> it's It's been so awful. And, 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 and everyone's been screaming. Everybody always screams here at night, but it's been extra terrible. And um, Dream says, don't worry. Tonight... Everyone will have a beautiful sleep. And tonight it will actually be quiet. And he lets them into their cell, and he disappears back to the dreaming. And this is my favorite part of the entire, of this issue that we're not covering, <laughs> um, is that coda of, in the beginning there was, listen, you can hear the screaming, you can hear the horror. And then it goes, listen, you can hear the gentle breathing of the dreamers in and out, in and out. You can hear it. And it's got the most beautiful page of... Arkham in the background and Morpheus kind of being like very big on the in the on the page and he's just like his cloak is open and it's like he's letting gentle restful sleep to everyone and it's beautiful I why do Neil and Karen think these think these are bad issues I don't know they're great (laughs) <laughs> they really are. I mean, maybe they're not like the complete like eleven out of ten that Sandman goes on to become, but they're but they're beautiful. Yeah, because I've read stuff like I've read Rama. I had to read Ramadan for mm. a college class. Wow, really? Yeah. Well, it was about it was the class was about the Western world. So okay. <laughs> yeah, which I don't understand. I I don't remember why we read Ramadan, but. Hmm. It was Especially good. Especially since that's about the Middle East. But yeah, it, it's but fantastic. It was good. It was, re- it was great. It's a great issue. Um, but, yeah, like, if, like, if, like, the rest of Sandman is, like, an 11 out of 10, like, these are solid nines. Agreed. They're, um, the artwork, I think we have to talk about a bit. Um, this is, this is full, um, it is full full uh mike drinkenberg and malcolm jones the third now um mm-hmm. they it's like you know when i first like heard when i first like heard of the sandman i thought it was very much like very epic like groundbreaking beautiful art like reminiscence of reminiscent of like renaissance paintings and stuff mm. it's like justifiably messy does that mm-hmm. does that make sense? Like, yeah, it's very sketchy. It's sketchy yeah, it's, in, in an art sense, not sketchy as in like a janky sense. <laughs> no, no, it's very it's very like lo- everything's loose. Nothing's really like clean. There's a lot of like crazy angles. Um, 
proportions are never the same twice. It looks cool. It, but it like it really like it. It looks like a dream or like a nightmare or like it looks like something that you could picture in your own head. Yeah. And I, and I really like how how that's done. Um I think like just looking at the covers, that's why I thought it was like so much more like beautiful mm. when it comes to like art sense. Sure. But yeah, the art is incredible. Um shout out to the lettering um done here again by um Todd, uh, Klein. Todd Klein. Todd Klein um Throughout all of this, I believe, I could be completely wrong, but I believe, like, this team does most of the series. Um, Todd Klein letters everything, um, and I th- I know Daniel Vazo did coloring at least up to um, um, A Doll's House. Um, okay. But the penciler and probably the inker also switch out, especially as you get later in the series, um, and I, th- I know Malcolm Jones III did pass away before I think it was finished. Oh. So I don't think, right. I don't think he stayed on. Um, but definitely the first book, the Preludes and Nocturnes. Yeah. Todd Klein, I'm glad he stays with the rest of the series because specifically, I think the way he letters Dream's speech bubbles and the way he letters John D's speech bubbles mm-hmm. are incredible. Have you read anything with Delirium yet? Uh, not yet. Not yet. Wait till you see Delirium speech bu- oh. bubbles. It's God, really okay. cool. I guess next time I'm out, I have to go and buy whatever the next volume is. So, yeah, um, no, you I... meet Delirium in Season of Mists. Um, well, I'm I'm excited. I've heard Game of You is really good. It's fantastic. My my personal favorite book is um, At World's End, or it's not At World's End. I think it's That's... just called World's End. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, At World's End is Pirates of the Caribbean. That's the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Um, oh, damn it. Now i got to check just to make sure I'm saying it correctly. Um, um, but I think it's World's End. Let me check. Hold on, this stupid thing. Sorry, you can cut this out. <laughs> I'm, I'm also looking. Okay. Um, it's just called World's End. Okay. And um, that one is really cool. That's where you meet Prez. Um, it's oh. basically like the Canterbury Tales. Yo, that's it's cool. really cool. It's like a whole bunch of people who. It kind of feels like a Doctor Who episode or a Twilight episode, Twilight Zone episode, where a bunch of people from like all reality are just kind of like together. They're people from like fantasy worlds and like distant planets and um, like present time and the medieval time and. They're like, well, we don't know what we're doing here at this inn, but let's just tell stories to pass the time. What I what I'm excited about, um, I'm excited about to get to Dream Country. I think, I think that's going to be really cool. Um, another another connection to like obscure DC characters that like, because that's Element Girl in there, mm-hmm. one of the Dream Country stories. Um, yeah, Element Girl. It's a great story about mental health um and that's one of the wonderful things is like i mean neil just kind of wrote whatever seemed important to him and neil's a really good person and he also wrote a lot of um queer characters because he was like i was noticing that my friends weren't being represented in comics and 
I wanted to represent him. So there's a That's... trans character in a game of you, um, and it deals with trans issues. Yeah, and then um, Judy... Desire is uh, right. Judy yeah. is lesbian. Yeah. Um, uh, Desire is non-binary. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yes. Um, and you're right. A Game of You is fantastic. It's I'm, a really cool story. I'm so excited for Game of You. Um, well, because Graham Morrison was doing that too. Not to like, not to like shift the focus away from Neil for a second, but I could talk, I could talk about Graham Morrison for literally ever. Um, <laughs> and I'm sad that we have not covered more of their work on the podcast yet, but it's coming. Um, <laughs> X month, 2024. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's Lee Kirby, Claremont, Morrison Hickman. Yes. That's my, that's my plan right now for the X-Men months. So <laughs> 2024. Um, but yeah, I, I, I forgot to say one thing about like vertigo at the very beginning of this. That as we're sort of wrapping up right now, I want to bring back for a second. Okay. Um, I was, like, doing research on, like, all the Vertigo titles, especially the early Vertigo titles. And, like, seeing the common themes and stuff and, like, the different, like, styles that were being used, I was like, oh, shit, this reminds me of a movie studio. Hmm. And specifically, are you familiar with, like, A24 as a, fi- yeah. as a, as a production house? Mm-hmm. I will posit my big theory that Vertigo is basically the A24 of comics. Hmm. Like, if Sandman had not been picked up by Netflix, I think it could have... I know that the Sandman was trying to get a movie made for years, and there's that whole story of, like, Neil reading possibly the worst script he's ever read. Being yeah. Being like some bad Sandman adaptation. Yeah. I think... I know A24 doesn't really do franchises, but I think A24 could have done some good Sandman films. Mm, okay. Because I think, um, like, like the Ari Aster, Robert Eggers vibes are huge in here. Mm. Um, <laughs> quick tangent. Um, when we went to an evening with Neil Gaiman, he read... he just recited some that he remembered because he said it was the worst script he'd ever read. Yes. Um, He was like, the script, the beginning of it was um, a bunch of people like shooting at Morpheus and Morpheus's dialogue was such. You think your puny mortal weapons can hurt me, the Sandman? (laughs) Ew. Yeah. Gross. (laughs) Yeah. Gross. That's bad. Yeah, it is. Um... This this sort of goes to my other um, theory, though, tying it sort of back to, like, because Vertigo does not exist anymore. Unfortunately. Karen Berger's Unfor- pissed about it, too. Karen Berger's so mad, and <laughs> I do not blame her. I do not blame her. Right, because, no, me either. Um, well, because Vertigo's gone, but, like, Sandman, is, Sandman stuff is still being published under, like, the Sandman universe imprint. Mm-hmm. And then oh, the new or the original titles are being instead of Vertigo on the side, it says DC Black Label. Yeah, DC Black Label. This is the this is the new like mature dark imprint, which gave us the Bat Penis. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> One of the first thing they ever published was Goddamn Batman Damned. 
where <laughs> we could see his fucking bat dick. Oh. <laughs> his bat dick. And, well, that's my big thing about Black Label. Is, um... Because if to compare Vertigo to A24, Black Label is very Blumhouse, if that makes sense. Like, I focusing so. on more, like, make it... It's a more for-profit rather than for art. Mm. Okay. Um, not to say that Black Label does not have really good titles. Um, I will say Nice, ha- nice House on the Lake, so good. Mm. So good. It's It really harkens back to, like, mid-late Vertigo of, like, separate continuity of... It's not in the DC universe. It's its own separate continuity it's just a really interesting horror story okay um uh nice house nice house and lake is good um catwoman lonely city um it's basically catwoman's dark knight returns Ooh. um she basically because it's set in a world where like bruce wayne died a decade ago mm. and now harvey dent is the mayor of gotham and he has basically gentrified all of gotham Ooh. And so it's Catwoman, Killer Croc, an old Riddler, the Riddler's daughter. Um, they're heisting the Batcave on election night. Wait, whoa! It's a heist story where they go ro- steal from the Batcave on the night when Barbara Gordon is challenging Harvey Dent for the mayor seat. That sounds amazing. It's awesome. It's so great. And it's written and drawn by Cliff Chang, who... It's so stylized and it's beautiful. Um, go read Catwoman Lonely City. Um, I only read the first issue of Aquaman on Andromeda, but it's Ram V, who is one of my new favorite, like, when it comes to horror and comics, one of the best new writers for that. Um, mm. It's his take on Aquaman cosmic horror. Wow. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, but then you have things like... Again, Batman Damned, which is just another dark Batman story. Sure. And then, like, there were so, there were so many, so many Batman titles, so many Joker titles, so many Harley Quinn titles, mm. and so many Suicide Squad titles published under Black Label. Mm. And like, those were the big things that they were like setting up the wheelhouse, and then. Strange Adventures, which I could talk for a while about because it infuriates me how much I love that book. Oh, great. I thought you were going to say how much you hated it. <laughs> this is say uh, this is a preview for what's happening in November. Um, November, we are covering a Tom King DC ma- maxi series that okay. basically Strange Adventures is the successor, the spiritual successor to... Um, I just and Tom King is a very polarizing writer for me, and I, I, will, I remember I, you mentioning that. I will get into my thoughts about Tom King in November, but but yeah, so because like all this black label stuff, it's mostly Batman or bat related characters, and like isn't that most of DC though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. I would I want to say they're getting better, but you know, they're mostly just giving mini series to 
other characters now. Like, right. Hey, everyone should go read New Champion of Shazam. It's so good. Um, it's it's Mary Marvel. It's it's a it's a fun Mary Marvel story, and I and I've never liked the Shazam family, but I love this book. Hmm, cool. But um, shouldn't she be called Mary Shazam, not Mary Marvel? Didn't well, they lose the rights? <laughs> she's still called Mary Marvel. I that think the only one me. they lo- I think the only one they lost the right the rights to was Captain Marvel. Hmm. I think. I don't okay. know. I but the way this book is being framed is she's very much taking up the Shazam mantle now, so I think she is just gonna be Shazam. Hmm, okay. Um but yeah, like all the all the interesting DC titles are miniseries right now, and it makes me kind of mad. Mm. I will say though, I will say though, the new current like mainline Batman is actually kind of good. Um, mm. From it's only been two issues, but it's written. It's being written by uh, Chip Zdarsky, who okay. who is Marvel's golden boy for the longest time. Um, he's he wrote things we have covered on this podcast before Spider-Man life story. Um, the daredevil run that I have mentioned, I love. Um, but now he's over at DC writing the main Batman title, which is good because as much as I do like James Tynion the fourth, um, his Batman was kind of getting stale. Hmm. Um, that story for another time, whoever wants to talk about fear state, that's my question. <laughs> fear state stupid i don't like it i didn't read it but i also didn't like the concept so in like three years when they release it in in paper and trade paperback maybe i'll be it's, able to talk to you about it i can't keep up with just single issue comics it's out there are some fear state trades out right now um also the justice league is dead right now which good but also it just means they're doing another crisis I hope, I hope this being recorded in September does not date this. Um, no, no, because Dark Crisis, I hate this stupid name, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths will be still releasing issues in October. Hmm. Yeah. No, it's just a sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths, but they added Dark to the name. Well, Crisis on Infinite Earths 2 does sound kind of dumb. Well, here's the... Th- we'll, end the episode, we'll end the episode soon, because we've really gotten... I do have more Sandman stuff to say, though. We'll, we'll quick touch on Sandman, but... But, but I, I have to talk about this. This, okay. is the, this is the seventh time that DC has rebo- rebooted the multiverse... Since 2006. Ooh. Um, so wow. the first first time, first thing they ever did was Crisis on Infinite Earths, where they, in the 80s, like, combined all the realities into one. And right. then Zero Hour was just a reboot of the timeline in the 90s. But then the first sequel to Infinite Crisis was, a sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths was Infinite Crisis in 06. Followed by Final Crisis, Flashpoint, Convergence slash DC Rebirth, Dark Knight's Metal, Dark Knight's Death Metal, okay, and now Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yikes. 
it's not. I I have really wanted because I've heard such interesting things about the Batman who laughs. I have really wanted to figure out where to start with with Dark Knight's metal and Dark Knight's what was it Death Metal. So okay, here's here's my opinion. Okay, read metal because metal is metal presents some interesting ideas and. Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo just are a great team, mm-hmm. always. Right. Um, you will at least have fun with metal, and okay. like there are a bunch of tie-in issues about the different evil Batman, which are they just have interesting concepts, and I like that. Um, yeah. Death metal is weird. Mm. Um, because isn't but is it the same, like the same concepts just? Like, same is it the concept, same story? It's so confusing. Same concept, but you have to... It's frustrating. <laughs> but you have to read all of Snyder's Justice League before it. And mm. because it introduces the character of Perpetua, goddess of the multiverse, who I do not care for. Because <laughs> I just don't really like multiverse stories that much. Mm. Um, read Death Metal for Batmo Beast. Just Batmo Beast. Okay. Um, that sounds fun. <laughs> Batmo Beast is Batman, but he's a car. <laughs> you That's know what? The, the greatest, stupidest thing I've ever heard. Listen. Okay. You know what? We already did one episode where I tangented about um, evil Batman. Let's let's do it again. We have Batmo Beast. We have Castle Bat. Who's a sentient <laughs> castle. No. Um, Bat Baby. That one's self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Um, the Unfortunately. Robin, the Robin King is a young Bruce Wayne who murdered his own parents and became crazy Joker-fied Robin. <laughs> okay. Um, that's all I can remember. Off the, oh, the giant T-Rex Batman. I don't remember his name. Oh, boy. Okay, final thoughts on Sandman. We have... <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. So... Um, first of all, have you watched this episode yet of the Netflix show? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. It's handled incredibly well. Um, I really like the way they changed D's motivations, um, just because of the way they had to rework the story so that, you know, all of the issues they were covering fit into 10 episodes. Um, so the way that they've reworked stuff with Ethel, D's mother, and how that kind of fits into the greater story, and also the fact that they can't, like, put in, like, actual DC stuff that isn't directly linked to Sandman. Right. Um, just the way that they reworked the story. I really like the way that D's motivations change. It doesn't change that much about what happens, and I can spoil it for you if you want, but I don't want to do that. I'm gonna. Okay. I'm probably. Get, I'm probably gonna watch it after we finish recording. So <laughs> we'll just record like a twenty minute addendum. Um, <laughs> um, I so I really like the Netflix adaptation. It also condenses this to about what the episodes are forty five minutes. So this is probably about thirty minutes, thirty five minutes. Hmm. Um, um, so they can't show you every hour like they do in the issue, but it's really well. I like the diversity of the cast. Um, I like the things they've reworked just in this story of like who the characters are to each other. Okay. Um, um, but what I really wanted to ask you about the issue is, do you think John D gets what he deserves? Because while he's not 
extra punished. He does, I mean, Dream takes him back to Arkham, so he is being put back in prison, but he doesn't do anything as a punishment, like, of his judgment on him. And the first time I read this, I was like, how can you, what? But, huh? So I want to know what your thoughts are on that. I feel like I have to read the issue again. Because <laughs> I've read it twice in the last two days. Um, okay. To prep for this. Sure. But I feel like I need to sit down and read it again. And I feel like I need to f- finish the rest of Sandman before I can like look back at these issues and recontextualize them. Okay. But... Yeah, I don't think I can give you a full opinion on that, but I have a question for you. Sure. How does David Thewellis handle John D in the Netflix series? He is marvelous. Okay. Honestly, that's, he's that's he's so good. Um I mean, he doesn't look like he does in the comic. Um so they didn't like they made him a normal guy. They didn't give him the same backstory because like I said, they can't involve the Justice League because they don't I mean, let's be honest, DC movie-wise doesn't know what it's doing or where it is right now. Um, So they didn't want to involve that and, like, have that weird extra baggage that fans have come to expect of, like, oh, so, like, is, is, if Batman's in this, like, does that mean that it's Robert Pattinson Batman or is it Batfleck Batman? You know, they don't want to deal with all that. So they have to rework a little bit. um, So he doesn't look like a crazy evil monster skull guy. But, but the acting is phenomenal. But he looks like David Thewellis, which is just <laughs> as scary. Because he can look scary when he wants to. Yeah. Um, I will say the, um, in what we mentioned earlier in Passengers, the race to, like, get to the, to get to Mayhew, to the storage unit, he, after he escapes, um, basically forces a a nurse to um, give him a a ride. And that in the Netflix series, that's like terrifying because you instantly fall in love with her. I wish I knew the actress's name who who played her. She's really good. Um, But like, you're so, so afraid for Rosemary. You're like, oh, please don't hurt Rosemary, please. (laughs) And in the comic, he shoots her once he gets to the, um, to the storage unit. All right. Yeah, this was a great conversation. Um, go If you want to get scared um, this Halloween season, go read 24 Hours, but also go read all of Sandman. Please do. It is, in my opinion at least, the greatest graphic novel ever written. It is... It is really climbing up the ranks for me right now. Um, Just wait till you read all of it. Yeah, You're I'm so excited. <laughs> um, thank you, Cole, for coming on this podcast again. Um, it was great. Thanks um, for having me, buddy. Yes, absolutely. Um, happy Halloween, everyone. And Woo. remember, if you want to hitch a ride, um, the best way to draw attention from passing strangers is to look like a corpse in a trench coat. Goodbye, everybody.
Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman's theme music was written by Charlotte Rosenthal. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman is produced by Mythonomica Productions. Thank you for listening.